Opening, closing. Written by Chuffy Stilton. Read by Meisinger. Chapter 3 On top of the frozen ice of the lake, Bato carved out the hole in the ice while Sokka got the equipment ready. He held up a slotted wooden board. Do you want to move the jigger or track it? Bato laughed. I know you want to track it. Together they lowered the jigger into the hole. Sokka watched the ice carefully. The fishing jiggers had been Sokka's favorite toy when he was six or seven or so. He could spend ages pulling on the levers and watching the spring reset the arm. When he was nine, he tried to invent a better version, a mechanism that could be operated by just one hunter. But he never could come up with a better version of the simple design. There were two levers on the board, connected to a spring, and as Bato pulled on the rope attached to one of the levers, the jigger crawled forward underneath the ice. Sokka moved along with it, listening hard for the tapping noises of the mechanism's leg to track its progress under the ice. "'That's enough for now,' Bato said. "'Think you know where it is?' Sokka dropped to his knees and brushed away the snow. "'Here,' He laid down on his stomach and breathed on the ice, then pressed his tongue against it to melt away a clinging layer of snowflakes, then peered down. There was at least four or five feet of ice in between him and the jigger, but the water here was so perfect that Sokka could see the painted wood as clearly as if there was nothing between them but air. He heard Zuko's voice again. I saw a lemur, and I followed him to the edge of a frozen pond. Sokka, did you hear me? asked Bato, and Sokka shook his head. There's something inside it, and I realized the spirits want me to crack the ice open. Sokka ignored the tingling across the back of his nape. I heard you. He grabbed one of the shovels and started to dig down. Bato joined him. Together they broke through the ice and hauled the jigger out, leaving the length of rope threaded between the two ice holes. Bato shook out the fishing net and strung it along under the ice, and then he and Sokka settled in to wait for the fish. Normally this was Sokka's favorite part of fishing, spending time with Bato and the fox dogs, watching the sun and its shadows move over the land saying either nothing or not much at all. It used to be one of the few moments in his life when his mind quit buzzing and simply let the rest of him be. Bato had that kind of effect on him. But today, there was no peace for Sokka to find. There was a thought darting just under the surface of Sokka's mind, as invisible to him as the fish in the dark waters beneath the ice. He tried to pin it down, but the angle was all wrong. 
And again and again it eluded the spearhead of his conscious thoughts, slipping just out of reach into the rippling water. In the end, they caught six gleaming silvery char, which Bato laid out on the snow so they could freeze before they brought them back. Bato was satisfied, though Sokka felt like they could have netted more if only they had picked a better location. He said so out loud, and Bato shook his head. Six is enough for dinner tonight. Some of the other men went out looking for whale walrus. Even if we only caught six fish today, we won't go hungry. The fox dogs yipped, eager to be off. The sled was already sliding off without him. Sokka sighed, but he ran and jumped into the sled without further comment. Somehow, Bato was right in the way that Bato was always right. Before they even caught sight of the village, the yelping of the dogs told them all they needed to know. At their excited noises, Bato took one hand off the reins and clapped Sokka on the shoulder. They both smiled, a silent message transmitting in the air between them. The other hunters were successful today. The animals could smell the scent of blood and meat in the air long before their humans could. They knew a good dinner was on the way tonight. At the village, Sokka found Gran Gran was skinning and preparing the whale walrus with the other women. She gave a quick, affectionate nod in his direction and called out, "'Go get my smaller knife for me, little sister!' Sokka was named after his great-aunt, Gran Gran's sister. So although they were grandmother and grandson, little sister was Grand Grand's kinship term for him. Always glad to be your servant, he called back. Grand Grand was holding a length of braided intestine in her hands, and she shook it at Sokka. A spray of tiny red dots fell on the snow like scattered berries. Just go, Sokka. I am, I am. Why are you dawdling? Am I? On his way to fetch the knife, Sokka passed by Bato again. He was unloading the sled. Sokka heard him make a noise of surprise and slowed down his footsteps. What is it? Bato pointed down to the ground. One of the fish from their catch had come unfrozen. It had leapt out of the basket and onto the ground. Sokka crouched down to pick it up. Slippery, the fish writhed out of his grip on the trampled snow. This one really wants to live, Bato said. He crouched down and plopped it back in the basket. Right, Sokka said. The thought half-forming in the back of his mind came closer to the surface, and he turned and ran. He found his grandmother with the other women, working on the whale walrus carcass. Some of them looked up as well and called out their greetings. Sokka forced a smile and waved. He didn't stop to chat. Gran Gran, he panted. I need to talk to you. Did you get my knife? There was no need to rush. Can you come away for a moment? Sokka said. This is important. Can we talk? His grandmother rocked back on her haunches and pursed her lips, surveying the work. Although the skin and blubber had been split open already, a faint steam still rose up from the innards. Underneath, the running blood glazed the ice with red. Sokka had to admit it was an impressive catch. 
Normally, he would be interested in chatting with the girls as they worked, or else hearing the stories from the hunters who brought it in. But today, he had more important things on his mind. Sokka waited for his grandmother to clean her hands, and then the two of them went inside to her house. She poured him another cup of warm tea. He fiddled with the teacup, and then, before she even put down the teapot, he said in a rush, Gran-Gran, have you ever heard of someone's bending being taken away? Gran-Gran sighed. Yes. What? Where? Here and there, Gran-Gran said. That's old shaman stuff, Sokka. These were already old stories when I first heard them, and that was when I was a young girl in Agna Kela. She looked amused at Sokka's seriousness. I'd never thought you'd be interested in something like that. I am, Sokka said. Go on, Gran-Gran. I heard about it for the first time from my father-in-law's father, so your grandfather's grandfather, Sokka. He was a shaman of the old type. This was before the Southern Water Tribe had heard about Twee and La, before they understood that the moon and the ocean spirits were already in this world, and they swam in their pond in the spirit oasis in the North Pole. The people here had their own beliefs. I couldn't understand it myself when I came here. Back home in the Northern Water Tribe, we were taught that the spirit oasis was the most spiritual place in the world. I thought everyone knew about Tuienlaw. Then I came south and met the people here. My father-in-law's father told me that actually, the spirits were everywhere. They were in everything. They were everything. He said that the spirit world and our world were actually reflections of one another. The avatar could pass between them, but so could those who became enlightened. In the old days, a shaman could pass through them as easily as a hand breaking through the surface of the water. Yes, yes, Sokka said impatiently. I've heard all this before. We thought once upon a time that everything was alive. I know this already, Gran-Gran. His grandmother tisked. Have some patience. I am patient, but what does this have to do with taking someone's bending away? Listen to me. Once upon a time, when we still had shamans, they were still just people. Some of them were good, and some of them were bad. The good ones helped their communities. They read the weather. When a hunter was missing, say, because the ice he was on broke away, a shaman could send their spirit out into the world and search for miles around to find them. But your grandfather's grandfather also knew bad shamans. He told me on the rare occasions when two waterbenders fought each other, one of them could reach into their enemy's soul and cut it. I asked him, what does that mean? How could anyone do that? And he told me, it's simple if you know how. All you have to do is break the surface of the water. A hard shiver came down Sokka's spine. No, he said. 
It's all stories. It's like how we used to believe people could possess animals or animals can possess people. They're illusions and exaggerations. People can't turn into animals, not really. It's just waterbenders using bloodbending, or it's an illusion they created with vapor. People pass down stories. Some of the old shamans were waterbenders, yes, but some of them had no bending at all. They just understood the spirits, little sister. They knew how to slip in and out of other worlds. That sounds crazy. His grandmother misunderstood his tone. To you, it does. Maybe that's why we don't talk about it so much anymore. Now we have lunar moths and messenger turns to guide us over the land. Young people don't need shamans anymore. Sokka pulled his sleeves down so Grand Grand wouldn't see how his hands were shaking. He had never told his grandmother about what Unalak was doing at the prisoner camp, or what Sokka himself had been recruited to do. Unalak always talked about entering the spirit world like it was some monumental challenge. It took preparation and calculation. It took a massive amount of energy. Energy from sources barely a step away from human sacrifice. But Grangran was talking about it as if it was easy. Maybe it was easy, Sokka thought, and another cold shiver passed through him. If Grangran's story was true, and he believed that it was, then taking someone's bending away wasn't a unique avatar trait at all. So it's been done before, he asked. There's a precedent for someone's bending being taken away? There were waterbenders who could do that? Grangran tutted. You're not asking the right questions, little sister. Did my great-grandfather ever tell you what it looked like when a waterbender did that? He only said that it looked like a piece of the southern lights flying up from the ground. A release of light and energy. Sokka's frown deepened. He had never told his grandmother what he was doing in the southern air hub, and living out here, Grangran hardly had access to sailors' gossip or scientists' talk. Her description sounded exactly like what Unalak was doing at the southern air hub. What about giving someone bending? he asked. Have you heard of a shaman who could give a non-bender powers? Grangran's wrinkled forehead creased in thought. At last, she shook her head. I've heard of adults who manifested late, but never anything about a person who could give someone power out of nothing. Unalak says he can, Sokka said quietly. The air nomads have fewer and fewer airbender babies every year. He says he's trying to save them by turning those children back into airbenders. Grand-grand sniffed. Only the spirits decide which humans get the gift and which do not. Not even the Avatar could disobey them. Unalak says he can, and Katara agrees. They shouldn't be so proud, Grand-grand said. We should never think we're better than the spirits and the animals. 
We should never think of ourselves as being big, powerful people that we're so clever we can outsmart the spirits. We have to be humble. Unalak isn't humble. Then he's wrong. We have to show we're not proud. That's when the spirits bless us and animals come to us. That was what my own grandmother taught me. And that was what my father-in-law always said after I was married. The spirits can hear you, and they don't like it when you show them disrespect. Grand-grand put down her cup and rummaged around her belongings. She pulled out something wrapped in layers of sealskin and laid it out on the table. Here, Bato and I made it this summer. I was going to give it to your sister, but if you're interested, Sokka... Maybe it should go to you. Sokka unwrapped the object. It was a curved knife, similar to the one his grandmother normally used, but made without a stem and with a handle of carved ivory instead of wood. The semi-lunar blade wasn't made of steel, but something mottled and irregular. In the dimmed light from the lamp, the blade was a dull black. Other than the strange materials, it looked no different than an ordinary domestic knife. Sokka had seen them in use a thousand times, butchering turtle seals, slicing food, cutting and sewing skins and sinews, puncturing holes for bootlaces, trimming the hair of babies and children. This is a woman's knife, he said. Take it anyways. You can pass it on to your sister if you don't want it. You'll see her before I do. Grand-grand took out something else, too wrapped in oilskin. You can give this to her as well. Sokka put the wrapped parcel away carefully, and then picked the knife up. It wasn't the same as his normal one, a hunter's straight knife that he wore tied around his belt. This one was weighted differently. The ivory of the handle felt warm and good under his fingers. Perhaps it was the echo of his grand-aunt Sokka in his soul, but the knife was not unnatural to him at all. Quite the opposite. In that split second, he knew he was never going to give it to Katara. It was his, and his alone. Grand-grand said, In the old days, the very, very old days, before we had metal, when they had to use knives made from stone, women used to find the right stones by holding them up to the sunlight. If it was clear and thin, at the end like ice, they knew the stone was sharp. That's how people thought about things back then. They thought the world was like a stone, and some parts of it were clear and thin. It was sharp there, you see? And when the shamans see it, they can use it. Grand-grand looked at him solemnly. It was so unusual for her that Sokka felt uncomfortable. He rubbed a thumb over the knife's edge. It was sharper than he expected from something not made of metal. He set it down and drummed his fingers on the table. He could not stop thinking about the letter. It haunted him still. Aang. He was at the center of it all. What happened to him? Forget the sensible answers, Sokka thought. I want to know the real one. Here was one way of looking at a problem, looking at what was there. 
But they needed another way of looking at a problem, which is to look at what was not there, to see both the thing and the reflection of that thing in the water, upside down and inside out. Unalak can subdue spirits and take away bending. These are powers that no one else is capable of. With these powers, he convinced the world that he was the Avatar. They all believed it, because they all wanted to believe it. The Water Tribes wanted a water-bending Avatar. It was the right time in the cycle. They saw a puzzle piece that should fit, and they wanted it to fit. So they convinced themselves that it did. But what if there was something else? Could someone get lost in the spirit world? He asked Granbran. What do you mean? Like, I've heard of something before from the Earth Kingdom. They have stories about a secret valley covered in peach blossoms. A day inside is like a century outside. Visitors spend a day there, but when they leave, they discover that a hundred years have actually passed and their family is gone. Is that possible? If someone enters the spirit world, could time pass differently? Grand Grand shook her head. I've never heard of that before. When the shamans enter, their bodies stay behind. Time passes the same for them as for everyone. That's why they couldn't stay too long, or else their bodies would grow weak in the human world. Right, Sokka thought. So that was one wild hypothesis out. No crazy time travel. He had the puzzle pieces, but the problem was that there were now too many of them. The puzzle was too big. It was all too much information, and he had no way to fit it all together. But it all did fit together somehow. He could feel it. He was close. On their way back to share the meat from the whale walrus, Sokka stopped in front of Bato's house. His grandmother tugged on his sleeve. She had been in the middle of some anecdote about old man Jarko disguising himself as a polar leopard to steal his neighbor's seal jerky, but Sokka didn't budge. You go on first, he told her. It was possible that she said something or asked him a question, but Sokka wasn't listening anymore. Parts of his brain were running very fast, which meant that he had to leave other parts of him behind. This was one of his weird moods, he knew. It happened sometimes when he edged closer to the cusp of a breakthrough in the laboratory. Everything narrowed and widened simultaneously. The thing called Sokka ceased to exist. So did the world, and his mind expanded to replace the land and the mountains and the sea. And over them flew the silvery, invisible currents of his thoughts. It was how he solved problems. It was the only time he was happy. He stared at the spot where the fish had fallen. He was thinking. When the weather got cold enough, hunters always laid their fresh catches in the snow to preserve them. Fresh meat was the best, but if it needed to be stored, the quicker the meat was frozen, the better it tasted later. Flash freezing preserved the tissue but didn't deform it. They stored biological samples in the lab this way for the same reason. A northern water tribe scholar wrote a monograph about this once. 
theorizing on the effect it could have on preserving humans who were near death but too far away from a skilled healer to be saved in time. Sokka had flicked through it without paying much attention, but he remembered one thing. It couldn't be done. No one yet had worked out how to preserve large organisms without osmotic stress, which caused irreparable damage to the living body. But say you did it quickly. Very quickly. Say you could control the temperature inside a human body, which he knew the airbenders could do. If an airbender and a waterbender worked together to supercool a human body, they could bring the body to below freezing, but have the liquid inside the cells remain liquid, with no formation of ice. There would be no dehydration, no damage. But in order to pull it off, the airbender and the waterbender would have to work in perfect lockstep. It would be fiendishly difficult. The delicacy of the task was unimaginable. One wrong degree and cells start to die. There wasn't a bender alive, let alone two who had such a degree of control. But the Avatar can do it, Sokka said out loud. No, said another part of his mind. The part that was going faster than fast. Correction. The real Avatar could do it. Sokka swayed on his feet. His tongue was so dry it stuck to the roof of his mouth. It was true. He knew that it was true. He had even said it himself. He couldn't solve a puzzle until he had all the pieces. But he also couldn't know if he had all the pieces of a puzzle until he'd solved it. Zuko saw it too, only he didn't know what he saw. A frozen pond. The spirit portal. He's still alive, Sokka murmured. He sank down to his knees. He's alive. That was chapter three, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Chuffy Stilton for letting me record this. Thank you to my girlfriend for not banging around upstairs. I really appreciate it. If you liked that, you can go leave a comment or kudos on the AO3 for this fic, and make sure to leave a comment and kudos for Chuffy Stilton as well if you're enjoying her work. You can find me on Tumblr as my own zinger, and you can find Chuffy Stilton on Tumblr as Volkswagen Blues. It'll all be in the doobly bits, doobly doo, you know, that, that whole thing. Stay safe out there and happy holidays. I appreciate you.